0: Welcome to PodCash, the portable professional development podcast from Cash Alumni. Cash Alumni is the fastest growing association of professionals in care, health and education, and we're happy to have you here. This is where you'll hear from specialists and experts from across our network. Here's what's coming up.
1: Children's ability to think spatially is a greater predictor of mathematical success later than numerical
0: knowledge. Let's jump in to this week's episode.
2: Hello and welcome back to PodCash. Um, I'm Don, and I'm really lucky today to be joined by the lovely Helen Williams. I met Helen at the, well I didn't actually, I watched Admiringly from Afar as Helen won an award at the Nursery World Awards this summer. And got in touch to, to Badger to ask if she would come and join us to record this episode of podcast. And Helen happily agreed and said yes. Um, so, can you introduce yourself um, for our audience?
1: Yes, um, Helen Williams. I live in the Southwest. I'm semi retired. I started out as a reception teacher, having trained for working with three to eight year olds, and uh, became quite quickly very interested in how. My young children were tackling the maths that was on offer then, which was a bit grim, to be honest. And a lot of worksheets didn't look like maths to me. I mean, I didn't like maths myself much at school. Certainly at secondary school, I didn't like it. And I was concerned that my children would have a positive experience about it, the ones that I work with. So I kind of started asking some questions. And I guess um, somebody heard a question and I went on a couple of courses and then I moved over a few years into the maths advisory team uh, in Cornwall, working with some really inspirational people and joined the Association of Teachers of Mathematics, been a member there for, me for about 40 years, which has supported me and challenged me right the way through my career. So I've become increasingly interested in the development of Early Years Children's Mathematical Understanding. And I'm a very happy member of the Early Childhood Maths Group, which I'm sure Dawn will give you <laughs> some information about how to find that website, because um, we're very proud of what we've put on there, and it's all free. So, yeah, now I have a lovely time working with um, practitioners practitioners developing sort of playful maths experiences I think.
2: There's now so many different things that that me brain wants to ask you but I'll try and ask them one at a time. The thing that jumped out the most from what you just said to introduce yourself was that you didn't like maths, um, which I suppose like for someone who that is now your whole career in terms of looking at that, that maths element and the teaching of maths and the stuff that you've you, you've just said that you do it's certainly a surprise, I suppose. T- to me, um, I-, I didn't like maths. It-, it always surprised us that my favourite maths teacher didn't like maths at school. Um, he failed his maths JCSA twice um, and learned how to do maths in the army. But how do you go from not liking maths to, to making it your yeah, yeah, whole like, reason, um, Detra?
0: I
1: think, because I was focused on the children what I was observing them doing, and that seemed way adrift. From what the what, what was being offered in terms of was the, the worksheets and the workbooks that were around in the 80s, um, and actually I do still see that some of that stuff around now, which is depressing after all that time, really. But it just seems so adrift. The children seem so powerful and they said such amazing things that I just thought the two didn't match. And I, and I so focused on the children, I think, I was thinking, well, what could I do with this to make it more interesting for them and make it more about the maths, really? And then I tried a few things out because I was focused on the children, I think. I got really interested in the maths because it's like, okay, so this isn't quite so simple, is it? It's not quite so simple as matching an egg cup to an egg to an egg or writing the numeral, the white row around in the box. It's not as simple as that. There's loads more going on underneath there. And I worked for a bit in a nursery. And that was like, wow! They're just so able to express themselves when they're when they're involved in what they're doing. So I wanted to tap into that, I think. And I hadn't felt that myself at all in maths. Meanwhile, parallel to that, I was going to the Association of Teachers of Mathematics conference. I don't know how the per- first person got me there. I remember being driven there by my father and um, saying to my dad, "Just just turn around. I'm not going. This is just too too scary." And he said, "Just get out, the car, Helen." <laughs> so um there I began to play with mathematics myself
2: that's great and it, and, and what a, a great thing to be driven by that whole like learning I suppose through a child's eyes that's really cool so what has changed since the 80s as as someone who was in primary school in the 80s and the 90s like what what's different from when I learned maths like why might I not it as much if I went back and did it now.
1: Oh, that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. I think, um, like anything, things change for the better, and some things change for the worse. And um, there was a massive revolution in the sort of nineties where there was an acceptance that, for example, manipulatives—things you handle in math lessons and play with and use—to represent the mathematics that you're doing in your head was important for everybody and I was in the maths advisory team where we that was we were helping teachers understand how to use manipulatives with all ages of children I mean our team went up to 16 I mean I worked in the primary part of that and we were working with year six teachers with 10 11 year olds and they could see how the children could understand say fractions by moving Cuisinair rods around or looking at um, interlocking cubes And that was a really big and exciting time for us to be working in. There was a move away, I think, from just get your books out, turn to page seven. And you, by the way, Dawn, you're only on page three. You know, that sort of business. Move away from that to doing practical things and asking questions to get children to think about what they're doing and express what they're doing. We work with teachers looking at good questioning approaches right the way through from four to 11 and how we dealt with questions in the classroom so that was all really exciting and that did impact on the classroom and there was the numeracy strategy took place and that was based in research actually that idea of a lesson where you have something start something all together then you work in groups and you come back to reflect on that but that just became like anything like it grows and grows and grows it kind of bit bastardized I think by everything and then people got overwhelmed with the hours and then it was a numeracy hour and I remember a child saying to me once, I don't really like the lunacy hour. And I thought, well, that actually says it all. And I think now, if you are in a school where the leadership team respect the professionalism of the people in the team, and you are working together on um, establishing how you're going to teach, what the basic principles are, um, how you're going to approach mathematics through, from from three to 11, say. If you're in that sort of school where that discussion is taking place Over time, on and off, I think your experience would be quite different because I think one of the big things is that in those schools, people say, well, why are we doing that? I don't think that works. Let's look at this. Or I've read this. Things are developing all the time, but you're still hanging on to the things that you know work for you. I think that would be different. I think you would find many more manipulatives probably being used. But I also think because there is perceived pressure from Ofsted and I think there is pressure from Ofsted and perhaps senior leaders who don't really perhaps understand what goes on with younger children put pressure on people to perhaps do things that they wouldn't do otherwise, perhaps move to written work a bit too quickly. Formalised written work a bit too quickly before children really have got a grip of what they're doing because they think well they're going to have to do that in the Sats or the Sats are coming up or we need to get ready for that or Ofsted's coming in and we need to show that they can. I think if you're in that sort of place, some things maybe look fairly similar.
2: For me, that was probably part of the problem because I'm not bad at maths. Like I hate it, but I'm not bad at it. Like I can I can do the maths, but that push to I suppose to write out how you got the answer and to write it out properly was was a problem for me because actually you're know, talking about manipulatives like and things that people play with to find out the answers I still do that in my head when I'm doing maths now so I know like when I mean, you have got like how to set out a, a, a long multiplication maths equation but in my head I still have to count out all of the blocks of tens and all of the blocks of units as if they're real things. I have to visualise. I can't do mental maths without visualising the actual units of of numbers. If I had been allowed to play a bit more with maths, it would have made a bit more sense. Because actually, when I got into secondary school, I was terrible at maths, but I was really good at physics. And physics is just maths
1: with a story. There's so much much to respond to that. I think that's interesting, isn't it? I do think that one of the things that has changed significantly is this uh, – well, I, I hope it has, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it has is, – is a realization that people aren't good and bad at maths. People aren't good and bad at maths. You get good at some bits of it, or you get good at it in some context, or you don't like that bit very much, not so good at that bit. You know, there's bits – or at the moment, this is tricky – it's, it's like an ongoing thing rather than a global thing. And one of the pieces of research that I read sometimes was Anna Svard. And she said it's so quick how older children move from, you know, they're perhaps doing something and usually it's to do with fractions, ratio or algebra. And they're doing it at age 13 and they've been fine. And then suddenly they say, oh, I can't do maths. It's like a global thing as a result of this one thing that they're finding tricky. And so I think if you spoke to most teachers now, they would accept that everybody has the potential to work mathematically. And it's our job as teachers to find out how to latch onto that and build on that rather than, I think, certainly 40 years ago, you had a, and I'm using inverted commas in the air, lower ability group, a middle ability group, and an upper group. We know now that that doesn't help anybody, not even the children, who are, inverted commas, higher ability. I don't like the word ability because it smacks off something permanent. And what I'm trying to say here is that these things are not permanent. You know, you can achieve differently at different times. I mean, I would say now that I was a very low achiever mathematically when I was in secondary school, but I'd like to think I wasn't so much that now. I think that we know that higher achieving children, if you are labeled as being really good at maths, you see, you won't take a risk you won't take a risk of what you do because you might be seen as getting something wrong and your personality is good at maths, not getting something wrong. And to be and to be a good mathematical thinker, you need to take some risks and try some things out and realize that sometimes that doesn't work. I need to go down another alley here. So high achievers act safe and they don't like, I mean, you hear teachers say a lot, oh, my ones are really good at maths. They don't really like problem solving. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> yeah. So you've got to have a learner. That is willing to, is resilient and willing to take things on and confident enough and enjoy that
2: challenge. And
1: we don't get that by labeling children as poorer middle group and top group.
2: That's really interesting. I think that idea that, I suppose, that maths is problem solving mm. which sounds like really obvious when you say it because obviously you're solving maths problems but it was really off-putting at school like even as a very young child the idea that you it was either right or wrong so I think there was that mm. idea that like well you either get it right or you get it wrong and actually maybe getting it wrong is part mm. of the process of getting it right wasn't something that like I was ever taught like this conversation is a revelation to me that like maths is problem solving in the same way that you would solve any other problem that you have to be able to try and figure it out and that might involve getting it wrong
1: there is a school of thought now that says well you can't really do that until you've learned the maths well i'm not of that school of thought because i watch three and four year olds solve mathematical problems you, you just need to go into a setting and you can see it happening and it's and you can build your teaching into that you know i might do a bit of teaching and then and then give them something so here we go so we might talk a bit about um i'm gonna take this off the top of my head now i Talk a bit, a bit about filling up containers with water and which are full and empty and all of that, and then I might set my challenge. Okay, fine. Which one holds the most water? You know, you can build your teaching and your, and then you have the time afterwards. We say, oh, what did you, what did you, well, Don, what do you reckon? This tall, thin one or? Why do you think that? How did you find that out? So you can sort of build your problem into the teaching. I mean, it's a nonsense to say the problem comes afterwards every time. I mean, one of my absolute favorites, and you said to me, I hey, well, hear a bunch of children, and I was like, oh, you know, I, I was it was, I was, cold. One of my favorites is the pirate's gold problem, and you just need a pile of um, coins, and you need two pirates. In comes two soft toy pirates, a teddy and a pirate and a whatever. And you say, okay, can these pirates have a fair share of the gold each? You know, they want to be fair. So you watch what happens there. All sorts of things happens there. You know, some children just pile it up. Some children, are very, you know, count it out. You can see where the children are coming from in terms of their ability to look at equality of quantity. You know, you might want to talk about that. And then, oh, look, here comes pirate number three. Now what? You know, he wants a fair share or she wants a fair share. Uh, what can we do? Do you think it will work? And then, of course, you can see how that might be white work into uh, what amounts of gold work fairly if you've got three pirates or two pirates or four pirates that's a lovely explanation so much teaching can come into that in terms of comparing amounts counting accurately the business of saying I think there's a confusion with problem solving people think it's a problem like those ones you get written down Dawn has seven apples Helen has three apples If how many apples has Dawn got you know that sort of that's sort a of problem, that, that that's a word problem with a set answer that is different to solving a problem mathematically
0: This is PodCash brought to you by Cash Alumni. If you're enjoying this conversation, please use your podcast app to follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode
2: That way of being able to present maths problems in that really playful way is I don't know, maybe, maybe something that takes breaking your own way of thinking about maths first because I suppose if maths is joyless for me as a grown-up I can't expect to deliver it with joy to children so how do practitioners recapture the excitement that you have found for maths
1: that has been my area of work for nearly 40 years i think really and the i think i try and do it the way i did it there are two stories actually that are occurring to me that i must have once i was um i was in the last school i worked in before i retired i went in one day uh, i was part-time at that point and i was and i was in year five six and i went in and this these children were like mrs williams you never guess what happened yesterday we had a supply teacher so i said oh yeah right do you know what she said she said right, let's get mass over and done with and get on with something interesting. She said, we all went, no, that's not the thing to say. You know, these children were horrified that she had said that. Like, I was actually, but I just thought, ah, oh. <laughs> we've won there with those children. Um, I've always tried to do it the way I did it. So if, we, if you, if I think if we can get focused on the children, if we do something like Pirate School, go and try that. Just watch what your children do. Make some notes and come back. Those are the courses that have been the most successful, I think, in changing people's attitudes because you start focusing on the children and then you start thinking, okay, I need to learn a bit of maths here. What What's the background here or where do I go with this? And what we do have now in the last 20 years, certainly in the last 10 years particularly, are a growing number of resource banks that you can go to to support that sort of work. I mean, I was in a meeting last week with some early years teachers from Durham and um, they're working, near Durham they are, they're working with Durham University mathematicians and the mathematicians are working with the early years practitioners. So the early years practitioners come and say things like, my children are really interested in circles and we've done a bit of this, but can you just give me a bit of background on circles? And so the mathematicians do some input and then they early years teachers go back and, and, you know, this kind of enriching their knowledge level of maths in order to take that back to the children. But with the children's interests at the heart of that, and then what happens is early years educators say, oh, and you can say, look, you can look, look at this now. Look at this now. See what the development is here, what research shows the development is in, say, counting or whatever it is. And then you are, I think, more confident about what you're doing because you know where you're coming from and going to and you're still focused on the children you're still focused on what they're showing you what they're knowing or what they appear to be understanding and you're then thinking about okay i can build on that by doing this so i think that is the only way of doing it really is by working in that way
2: that makes sense i really like the idea as well that the the like, teachers and practitioners learning their own new maths things sort of through the kids um like learning about Um, like new facts about circles um, because the children are interested in circles um, being able to go and sort of enrich their own knowledge to be able to then deliver it Um, and I suppose for people with teacher brains that's an excellent way to learn things um, to do it through that like eyes of somebody else. How can people who don't have a background in maths and who might have maybe avoided maths generally, how can they find out more about the sorts of exercises like Pirate's Gold, like all of those things? How accessible is that sort of contextualisation of maths? The Enrich site, which is
1: uh, based uh, at Cambridge University, N-R-I-C-A, Enrich Math, has been around for 25 years. In fact, that is probably One of the only places where you can find that sort of open-ended, low-threshold, high-ceiling task. So you start off, so every child can access that. And they've organised their tasks under sort of early years. Um, It's really sort of, um, I would say, probably reception-y, top-age group of nursery up to secondary. And they've organised those under sort of headings. There were some articles on there, background articles, written by colleagues my colleague in the early childhood maths group, some of them. Um, and those tasks are all trialed with children a lot of times. And they're quite simple to, to kick off, you know, with your group. And that they are fascinated to observe what the children take out of it and what you get what you get back from it. And if you email Enrich, I think they still do have, like, somebody that answers your maths questions on there. They always used to. That's a really good place to have a little look. Slightly different organizers our website the early childhood mathematics group website and we have guidance and on there for from birth to seven and those are grouped under age groups and it's not laid out quite like that not like tart don't start with a task you kind of look at the age group and there are some things on there about the development within that age band and what you might be doing I think it's probably slightly more teacherly. Yeah, I think it's good support for people. Um, one area that's really underemphasized and not well understood is an area of the sort of shape space, the shape of space, the geometry area with very young children. And yet research shows that children's ability to think spatially is a greater... Predictor of mathematical success later than numerical knowledge. And that's because if you work spatially, you are visualizing, you talked about it earlier, <laughs> you're visualizing things. And um, if you work with jigsaws or you're looking at maps or you're looking at Lego diagrams, you're having to sort of um, predict what will happen if I switch this around or should I, you know, that duck piece fit there. All of that uses the part of your brain that you're going to need to mentally calculate and work with more abstract stuff when you're older. We think that is what it is.
2: Do you think that's got anything to do with, like, if you're picturing things, then you you definitely understand them because you, you're, you're seeing that stuff work, so you have to actually understand what's going on or you're, like, figuring things out by actually seeing it happen, whereas that, when I mean, you're talking about, like, the the just recall, like, the, the understanding, like, the having maths knowledge is, is possibly more, like recall of facts or sort of so you could you could demonstrate that mathematical knowledge stuff by just remembering but actually to be able to do that spatial that you've actually got to be able to to understand
1: there's lots of words there that probably need unpicking like understand recall and all of those words which i think are often bandied around without much discussion about what they mean Certainly, there's a difference between being able to recall something and and apply that knowledge. So, an obvious example of that is I might say, um, seven nines, and a child might give me the answer to that. But if I said, so, um, if I if I approached it a different way, maybe a child says to me, Oh, eight eights are 64, and I'd say, Okay, so 64, how many times does eight go into that? Yeah, how many? they wouldn't be able to answer that the other way around. you see what I'm saying? It's like applying that is completely different to actually just recalling the fact. And you have to be able to do both. Neuroscientists and cognitive scientists are still looking at the relationship between spatial reasoning and later achievement. Certainly it's, it's predictive. Whether or not it's causal, because they can argue about that for a really long time, but there's certainly a correlation, a really strong correlation. So it's something we should be looking at. I am encouraging us, early early years practitioners to look at with their children is look at look at doing jigsaws with your children don't just put it out and leave it out look at children help them work out you know suggest things like do you need to turn that round so it fits or have you got have you got two straight edges so that's what i think you might need two straight edges or if you haven't got one of those blocks could you use two of any other one uh, blocks to fit those together What sort of length plank do you think will fit in here? Those sorts of discussions where encouraging children to sort of reason about the shapes and visualise what might fit and what it might be like when it's turned round, we're sort of exercising that ability and the confidence to visualise and interpret things and, and and then make a decision based on that is what's important. So I guess that, yeah, for me that is about using the understanding You're having to do it. You're having to apply it. I mean, we all know what the IKEA diagram thing (laughs) is. When you see it, you think, what screw is that? Is it one of
2: those screws? There's so much maths that people just do without thinking about it being maths. Like, I remember when I was working in Welfare to Work and we were supporting people with functional skills maths and sort of filling in clock faces and things like that that you just do and you never think about it being maths. But the minute someone says maths, you (laughs) go, like and actually that idea that you could play with lego or you could do a jigsaw that could be a whole maths lesson that you'd then like because you can take things out of it and build in that learning into to what it is that they're doing and encourage that conversation
1: it is maths because maths isn't just numbers maths is about pattern and recognizing similarity and difference having able to operate and solve problems whether they're geometric or numerical and um so the ability for, of young children to be able to see similarities and differences and recognise that is a start. Is a start of that, really? I mean, if you think, I mean, if you ever done um, these sort of uh, the tangrams? Have you, have you seen those? The tangram puzzle. It's a square and it's cut into seven pieces. There's a diagonal cut, corner to corner. Then another diagonal cut opposite to that and then another couple of cuts <laughs> you can do it and you end up with seven pieces and um, you can make lots of things with those pieces you can make cats and dogs you know all sorts of things so that's a really nice way in but of course what you've got there is a, it, the area is still the same every time so there are and and there's lots of things you can talk about in terms of similarity and difference there. but it's the idea of and also at the end, you say, "Well, can you can you put it back into your square? You know, you started with a square. That ability to take things apart and see how they are, how they are constructed because you've taken it apart, and then you can put it back together again. That you do. That's what you do with numbers later on, isn't it? So it's that. It's that's really important. The spatial side of things is just as important as the numerical side. And and then you've got measures, which is like applied number, really, isn't it? Those things are in the statutory program for the early years foundation stage, just as much as the number is, um, and they're there because they're important. They're in the educational program, and that is statutory. Uh, and lots of children find their way into um, enjoying maths through those tasks rather than straight number tasks. And so, you know, that's that's a good way of building their confidence and their and their knowledge and their confidence to tackle things that they don't find
2: enjoyable this is absolutely fascinating like i'm thinking about like even things like um at school like in secondary school thinking about how all of the kids that did art and textiles were in the (laughs) i hate maths sort of club but actually a lot of that was maths but again that you don't think about it being maths and all of us i suppose lost opportunities for being able to contextualize that learning by i suppose that segmented approach within like secondary education with primary school maths, do you think that there's more to come in terms of what people are doing and what people are yeah. finding out about yeah. how children learn in primary school?
1: Here. I think we're just scraping the surface. Seriously, I think we are. I mean, um, the, what we've learned about how young children, about the young children's um, early number facility, has has absolutely mushroomed in the last ten. 15 years well certainly and since you know i have my own class it's changed enormously um i mean i had never heard the word suppatizing when i had when i had my class when i started teaching and that became a bit of a thing in the middle of 90s like you look it up and you did some reading on it and um, now it's huge there is there aren't many teachers in um, school that haven't heard the word. I think that will continue happening. There does appear to be quite a lot of research in uh, in younger children. There's a gap, I think, in terms of useful research for children between the ages of 7 and 11. I think quite a lot of that's maybe focused on children that aren't doing so well. And you think, well, actually, we just need some decent classroom-based research there. And we've got quite a bit of research on older children, often from the States. And what's happened with that sometimes, 11, 11s and 16s, is that some of that, those findings are being sort of inputted into the 7 to 11-year-olds. And you think, hang on a minute, this research hasn't even taken place with this age group. So I think there is a bit of a dearth there in terms of really good, exploratory, useful classroom, useful research. But I think it will come. I mean, there's a new centre that's opened up, at Loughborough, which is really exciting, called the Centre for Early Mathematical Learning, headed up by a great team of which um, of, of, of a whole host of people, um, cognitive psychologists as well as educationalists, um, and I'm lucky enough to be on the sort of outskirts of that. Even though I live all the way down there. We, you know, I, was, I went to the launch and we're involved in quite a few of the. Uh, developments there and I think things like uh, we've started looking at children's attitude and how that affects I think what we do we've look there's been a heavy emphasis on cognitive children's cognitive development and I don't think you can isolate that from our emotional so I think there needs to be more work on um, how we tackle children's emotional responses to things and how we how we invest in that really and use that to, to support them as they learn because we all know we're effective if we don't like something we really want to make much effort.
2: Yeah, that's definitely true. I'm definitely a one for like, oh, I'm not very good at that. That I'll let somebody who is do that thing and I'll concentrate on this thing that I am good at because that means I enjoy it more. Um, that's really encouraging that all of that stuff, I suppose, is, is still in the post when we have come so far since the 80s. But I don't think that the parts of our audience who are not education practitioners would forgive us if I didn't ask you what subitizing was
1: <laughs> no I don't I thought about that as so I said it I thought that's probably not fair um you you can you can google it with a z or an s in the middle so subitizing might be, or as English versions have an s in it but the original research came from the states from Doug Clements laboratory he's based in Denver and his work with his partner Julie Sarama is incredible and I'll give you the link to their website so you can put it up in the note um and it, it's the recognition um that through finding out from research that we are able as mammals to recognize a smaller quantity without counting them so you could i could show you three dots and you go three you haven't got to go one two three and there are animals that use that skill that conceptual skill to recognise a small quantity in order to see if any of their babies are missing or all of those things. I'm not an animal researcher, so you'd have to Google that bit up. But um, we all have this conceptual ability to subitize a small amount, but only up to about four. So when it gets to five, if I showed you a row of five dots, you, you would probably need to arrange them into a dice five, if you know what I mean by that. Dot dot dot, and one in the middle to say, oh, that's five, because a row is quite hard to recognise all in one go so what we do then is we use that cons- ability to conceptually subalive subitize to perceptually subitize larger amounts so if i showed you a random array of seven dots you'd be doing you, you and i'd say to you what can you see you'd go "Well, i see two there and three there and a two there somebody else would go oh i saw a one one one, one, one. you know so you, we use our ability to recognize a small amount to undo a larger amount so now you can see how this business of taking numbers apart and putting them back together again, and seeing how they're made up, and like I talked about the diagrams, is all related. Really, there are lots of lovely games you can play with children where you build that ability to uh, their confidence in 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 subtitling. You have, if you've got children of your own, you will have seen them go things like three bananas, two duck you know, they would do that from quite young and then we work on that with them to say with a larger number, okay, what can you see there? Can you see two them and another three and another one? You know, that ability to build build that up. There's a really nice card game which um uh, I'll think of it and you'll put and it will be there in the notes like you said, won't it?
2: It will. We're gonna add it into the notes. Um I suppose I did tease a little bit at the start and say that I had met you at the note well through attending the nursery world awards and being there when you were presented with the award for your Amy as a new book can you tell a little bit about it
1: yeah it was lockdown and i had a phone call from a publisher who, who found me on twitter and had read a couple of my blogs and said oh do you fancy writing a book and i do you know my heart sank. i was like oh no i don't and i was I, you know, I said no not really and um she was quite persistent and i thought well actually Nothing else is happening. (laughs) Um, I could sit in the garden and do a bit of typing. Um, But I did push really hard about the book I wanted to write. So this is the book that I wanted to write. It's full color. It's called Playful Mathematics for Children 3 to 7. It has taken, like, I've got all my notes out that I've kept, honestly, on the back of envelopes as well as in exercise books and all over the place and on the computer for years to illustrate what the di- what what I wanted to illustrate so all of the descriptions of children talking are actually happened over the last, to me over, uh, over the last 30, 40 years some of these notes are quite old I've broken it up just into I think there's five chapters I need to check that um and I've looked at ch- how to how we might work on developing children's mathematical reasoning which is a big big thing I think that we need to do and we don't do very well yet I've looked at what it means to be prepared to teach as opposed to preparing a lesson so that's really what we were talking about in terms of doing a bit of reading up before and afterwards like oh who's doing this What is that where does that fit you know there's a chapter on the adult's role like how we respond to things that we don't expect or how we might work with children when it's a bit more open-ended so we don't shut them down so we um bring them out to bring out what they know and build on that and there's a bit, obviously, all the way through on what playful means and, and uh, what that might look like sort of on the ground. So, yeah, that's it. It's got some fantastic photographs in it from amazing practitioners. So, yeah, I'm pleased with it. And I was very, very, very honoured to get that award. I didn't expect it. I It's unusual for a maths group book to even come up for the award. So I was completely shocked. When I got to it, I was completely taken aback, and I'm, I am th- absolutely thrilled about it.
2: It sounds great. I mean, it sounds like it really embodies that whole idea of that like holistic approach to maths and about maths not being easy to teach and not being easy to leave all that baggage behind. Where you think, again, in the same way that you think, well, maths is just numbers, and you sort of exclude all those areas and think badly of yourself for not being a numbers person, it's easy to dismiss maths as just numbers in that way of like, well actually you can still bring emotional baggage to maths the same way you can to an English lesson or to any of those other things and to 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 impact what's going on in your room. So I'm excited to see what more we can we can learn about maths from the researchers going on and teaching maths but also what other maths discoveries are in the post because it blew my mind when i realized when i found out that zero hasn't always existed as a mathematical concept so like what else is there that we're going to learn about maths maybe through those kids that are being taught now to to explore um thank you so much for your time this morning it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you for me talking to you and for anybody who's listened to to the podcast um that that, that we've recorded this morning um it's been really surprising for me that it's been so nice to talk about maths for such a long time um so thank you very much um can you tell people where they'll find you online yeah
1: i'm really only on twitter and my twitter name is at Helen JWC, H E L E N J W C.
2: Amazing. Again, yeah. we will put the link to your Twitter handle um, down yeah. in the episode description for anybody who wants to find you. Thank you very, very much for
0: Thank you, Dawn. Thank you for asking me. Thanks for listening to PodCash. If you enjoyed it, please follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. You can also watch many of these conversations by heading over to cashalumni.org.uk and going to the CPD and Best Practice section of the site. That's cashalumni.org.uk.